Let's get into the Word. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. That's where we're going to be primarily looking at today. As you're turning there, let's go ahead and stand and pray for the preaching of the Word. Father, we are um, humbled in, in your presence, and even as we're, we're shouting uh, and singing Hosanna and talking about how you are gracious to save and we're extolling the greatness of your name, Lord, we're, we're reminded that uh, you're, you're immutable. You don't change. And we thank you for that, that we're not going to wake up uh, today or tomorrow or next week and find a different God. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, you're not going to stop pouring out your grace. You're not going to stop pouring out your love, God. You will be consistent uh, with who you are and with your nature and with your attributes, God. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you, Lord, that um, you are so gracious to us. Thank you that we can come into your presence with uh, the, the saints of God and sing your praises. Thank you for Mike and the worship team, Lord, bringing us before your throne today. And Father, we want to have hearts that can receive your word and truly receive it and act on it, God. So let, it, let, let your word do its work in our heart. Father, we're, we're blessed. You've blessed this church with uh, many different children. And we ask, we ask, Father, you'd bring them to know you at a young age, that you would give them a saving faith to trust in you, to seek you, Lord that they would stay on the narrow path um, and seek you all their days, God, that they would be difference makers for you, they would live, live lives in such a way to glorify you in all that they think, all that they say, all that they do. Even this Christmas program, Lord, that they're preparing for, that you would bless it. Thank you for the different ladies um, working on that and preparing that, God, that it would be a blessing to this church and to family and friends that will be coming, God. Lord, go before us now. Spirit, we ask that you would speak um, truth uh, through this message. Let only be truth spoken and let us receive it as it truly is the Word of God. Amen. All right, you're going to hear uh, a sermon today on 1 Thessalonians that you might not ever hear again in your lifetime, which is kind of a big claim. <clears throat> um, I only say that because I've listened to thousands of sermons as well as podcasts and books. I've never heard anyone discuss 1 Thessalonians the way we'll look at it today. Which is it's kind of cool because, and it, because it's not a criticism of anyone. Um, the Word of God is so rich with knowledge that leads to godliness that a preacher can't get in depth into all 66 books of the Bible in, in his lifetime. Um, you can almost, it almost feels like, you know, you talk to preachers that are older, it's like they feel like they've just kind of scratched the surface of the gold that is there to mine. So anyway, um, how many of you have read 1 Thessalonians um, between one and four times? Between one and four times, okay. What about uh, five to ten times? Okay, anyone more than ten times? Okay, cool. Well, um, I've been praying that as I've been preaching through 1 Thessalonians, that the Lord is showing you things and enlightening your mind and heart to truths that are there. And one of the things that I want us to see today clearly, especially in uh, the few verses we've been looking at the last few weeks in 1 Thessalonians 3, but also through the whole book, 
is the um, concept of the deity of Christ that is actually interwoven throughout the entire book of First Thessalonians. Um, if you read it, sometimes if you're like me, you know, you're, you read something and you can be reading it and sometimes it's like you read it and it's just like you just, there's not much there. You just didn't get anything out of it. That's probably more a, a reflection on, on, on you than, than the word of God, obviously. But sometimes like, you know, stuff is really popping out, right? And the Lord's really speaking to you. Um, sometimes we can miss stuff and then when it's brought to our attention by someone else, we see it clearly for the first time. So I'm hoping today we can maybe see some of these things clearly that are seen in First Thessalonians. One of the questions I want to begin by asking, though, is, is what do new believers need? What do new believers need? Like you just led someone to the Lord, and what are you going to emphasize over and over and over to them? Well, you're going to emphasize the gospel, right? I mean, that's the foundation for our faith. That's the foundation. That, that's, that's the good news of Jesus is what we need, and that's what saves us. So we're going to, you're going to emphasize the gospel, what God, through Christ, did for them. And that, at its foundation, is sound doctrine, which is the title of the book that we've been going through in our life groups. New believers need sound doctrine. They need the true doctrine of God. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of God, we, we have a term for that. What's the term? The doctrine of God. Theology, right? Usually, we, it, there's actually two aspects of theology. Theology kind of covers everything when we're studying the Word of God, essentially. But when you talk specifically about the doctrine of God, that term is theology. And I'm getting some reverb up here, by the way. The, the, other, the next thing is they need the true doctrine of Jesus. What's that called? Christology. Okay, good job. Christology, the study of Christ. They also need the true doctrine of the Spirit. What's that called? All right, you guys are starting to warm up a little bit. Good job. Pneumatology. And they need the true, true doctrine of man. Anthropology. <clears throat> okay. Those are the big fancy names. We just call them the doctrine of God, doctrine of Jesus, doctrine of the Spirit, doctrine of man. That's fine. Uh, why do they need those things? Because here's, here's something I want to emphasize. When we're studying the Word of God and we're learning about these, these different things, when we're learning about the doctrine of God, when we're learning about the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of the Spirit, the doctrine of man, it's not just an intellectual endeavor. Are you hearing me? It's not just an intellectual endeavor. I went to school uh, with my undergrad and studied under a professor who went to Harvard and ha had his doctorate from Harvard in the Bible. Very, very, very smart man. Very intellectual. I'm not sure he was saved, though. I'm not sure. Um, we can know many things and have very much heady knowledge but, but head knowledge doesn't save. And we can have intellectual endeavors where we try to do things and, and we go about acquiring truths and beliefs. But here's the thing, friends. We need to make sure that the knowledge that we're gaining, the Word talks about it, knowledge that leads to godliness, knowledge that transforms us. And when we're getting truth from the Word, 
that truth has a transformative power which comes from the Spirit. But it's very possible, and maybe you've been guilty of it yourself, I have too, where you can come and you can read the Word and not much transformation happens. But that's not on the Word, that's on us. So when we're gaining knowledge about things, we have to make sure that we let the Spirit have a transformative effect on us. If we truly believe truth, if we truly believe it, it will transform us. It will change the way we think. It will change the way we act. Truth, when it's fully imbibed, transforms. Why do we want, when it comes to a new believer, why do we want to emphasize something that seems so basic as the gospel? Because it's foundational. It's foundational. If you get the gospel wrong, think about it. If you get the gospel wrong, you're way off track. You derail from the moment you start to pull out of the train station. You're already off the track. You have to get the gospel right. Look at Mark 13. This is Jesus talking. Verse 21. He says, And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. New believers need this. Why? If they Listen, if the false Christs and the false prophets can trick and dupe people, they must be pretty good. They must be pretty good. They're, look what it says. They're even doing signs and wonders. So new believers need this. But guess what, friends? Old believers need this. All right, some people use the term mature, right? <clears throat> but some of you are old. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you resemble that remark, don't you? <laughs> what do old believers need? The same exact thing. Again, who does Jesus say can be led astray if possible? The elect. I mean, that, that should be, and that's why he says in the very next verse, verse 23, be on guard. Be on guard. Even if you're one of the elect, be on guard. There's going to be false Christ. There's going to be false prophets. They're going to arise. They're going to try to dupe you and deceive you. Where's one of the first things they go to when it comes to duping you and deceiving you? Distorting the gospel in some shape or form. They'll try to, they will try to twist it to suit their own purposes. That's why you need a healthy knowledge and understanding of what the true gospel is. We don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. Second John 7 says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. And even in First Peter, he talks about they were among us and they went out from us, but they were not of us. So you can even have people within the church, people with influence, preaching and teaching a false gospel. So we want to be sure to be sharp when it comes to the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? It's that what, what we needed most, God sent for us. What we couldn't do, God did. We were fallen. We were without hope. We were dead in our sins. What did God do? 
sent his son to rescue us. And that whole message is seen from Genesis to, Revela to Revelation. It's, it's the rescue story that God is redeeming a people for his own. How does he do it? He gives us a glimpse all the way in Genesis through his son Jesus. And it's through trust in Christ because when Christ was on the cross, he's hanging on the cross. Friends, your sins were placed on Christ. But here's the thing. Someone had, there's still a penalty to pay. That, I mean, the reason your sins were, were placed on Christ, someone had to pay a penalty, and Christ paid the penalty. It wasn't just dying on the cross. That was part of it. But, but the bigger aspect was receiving the wrath of God. That's how the payment was paid. God has to pour out his wrath. To be just, God has to pour out his wrath. He has to. If he's going to be just, I would even say if he's going to be loving. They, those actually go hand in hand. Uh, we don't want a sentimental God. We, we don't want a, a God that just, oh, just everything's fine. Just do, do your own thing. No, God has standards. God has morals. Be holy as I am holy. So Jesus, on the cross, your sins were taken and placed on him, and then he paid the penalty. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus because of your sin, because of what you did. And Christ willingly came to do that for you. Willingly. He covenanted with the Father before the beginning of time. That's the rescue plan that really was set up before Genesis. Before in the beginning. And he did it for you. So when we talk about the gospel, we need to remind ourselves there's, there's the truth of the gospel, and we need to make sure we know it. There's also the beauty of the gospel. I mean, the, the gospel is beautiful, is it not? When you, when, when you as a believer, finally, uh, let me say, when you as an unbeliever, finally humble yourself, and for some of us, that, that took a long time. It took a long time. You had to make a whole lot of bad and stupid decisions. But you humbled yourself before God. You finally bowed the knee to Him. You finally <clears throat> pushed aside what you wanted and decided to do what God wanted. I even remember thinking before I got saved, reflecting back on it, like I had, you know, my list of priorities and, and people who were, you know, top in my life. And, and, you know, I had this like vague notion of God. I, it was more than a vague notion. I, had, I, believed in, I believed in God. I was probably more like a deist who knew about Jesus. But God wasn't in the top, you know, five of my life. Probably wasn't even in the top 25. But realizing, like, if you're going to talk about Jesus saving you, if you're going to talk about, it says Jesus is Lord, right? That's what it says in Joel. That's what it says in Romans. To acknowledge him as the king. And, and when you humble yourself and you start to see, man, the beauty of the plan of God, it's a beautiful thing of what God did for you that he had planned out from before the beginning of time. That's the, the beauty of the gospel that you see slowly being unrolled from Genesis through Revelation. And then there's also what we might call the power 
of the gospel. The power of the gospel. That God can use the truths. That God can take this, this cross. The, the, you know, the Romans used that to instill fear. Now we see it today. And it's a symbol of hope. But they used it as a symbol of fear. This, this cruel, torturous thing God uses for his own purposes. And God, through the Spirit, uses the gospel to save people just like you and me. And here's the thing, friends. How many gospels are there? There's only one gospel. There's only one. Look at Galatians for a moment. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Hey, I thought you guys just told me there's, there's only one gospel. You see how I set you up there? Let's keep reading. We're going to find something out here. So you're, you're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Think back to those false Christs and those prophets, those false prophets preaching a false gospel. This applies to them. Paul says, let them be accursed. Literally, the worst curse he could have said in Greek against them. Let them be anathema. But I want you to notice just a couple things here in this passage since we're already looking there. When he says in verse 6, um, turning to a different gospel, he's going to use two different Greek words here. This word different means one of a different sort. So when he's saying you're turning to a different gospel, he's saying it's something completely different than what you already know. You've, you've taken the gospel and distorted it so much, it's different. But then he goes on to say, not that there is another one. So he's emphasized there's only one gospel. And then there he uses a different word for another. It's another of the same sort. So there's not a different gospel of a different sort, but there's not even a gospel, a different gospel of the same sort. There's just one gospel. Not a different gospel. There's not even one that's kind of similar. If you start to twist it at all, it's not the gospel. So we want to remain faithful to the gospel. Friends, why is this concept of staying faithful to the gospel so important? Look at 2 Timothy. We're going to get a glimpse. Starting in verse 3. For the time is coming, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Why won't they endure it? Because they have the itching ears. I mean, isn't that a, a, a kind of a great little picture in your mind, right? I mean, their ears are just itching to hear what? What they want to hear. It says, so they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If you want to do something in the name of Christianity, there's a false teacher out there that will give you permission to do it. So if you go looking hard enough, 
you'll have people who claim to be preachers of the word giving you false reasons to do what you want to do. And your itching ears will hear exactly what you want to hear. Listen, friends, every believer, every, every single one of us, every single one of us will be tempted to compromise on things in our life. Every believer. Probably this week, you've been tempted to compromise on things in your life. And you have weaknesses that Satan will hone in on. And he'll get his minions to entice you, to lead you to believe that what you're doing, what you're thinking of doing, is not that big of a deal. That it makes no difference to the kingdom. That it's just a small sin. Actually, it's no sin at all. And he entices you. And those itching ears want to hear it. And come along, my friend, he'll say to you, as he leads you to the path of destruction. You know, a a little bite of the fruit won't do you any harm. That's what he says. Listen, it always starts small. It always starts small. Do not, do not, do not water down your faith in such a way. Do not compromise your faith in such a way. The blood of Jesus is too precious to be insulted in that way. So stay faithful to the Lord. So when we talk about That's my introduction, by the way. (laughs) When we talk about why is this so important, because when we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're going to look at that in 1 Thessalonians, we kind of need to have a good backdrop of what really is at stake. Because if, if we mess up the gospel, we're going to start messing up other things. We're going to start messing up the doctrine of God. We're going to start messing up the doctrine of Jesus. We're going to start messing up the doctrine of the Spirit. So, I I say that all almost like to get to my first point here, which is notice how Paul talks about who the gospel belongs to in 1 Thessalonians. So turn to 1 Thessalonians, if if you turned away from it. I want to look at a couple places, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So there he calls it the gospel of God. Look at verse 8, a couple verses later. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. There again he calls it the gospel of God. One verse later, verse 9. Towards the end, he says, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And and it is God's, right? It's his gospel. But we also see he calls it the gospel of Christ in chapter 3, verse 2, starting verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. The names are interchangeable. Why? Because the gospel of God is the gospel of Christ. There's only one gospel, right? Such that this gospel, which is the good news of God sending his son to save us, can be called the gospel of God or can be called the gospel of Christ. 
Why? Because it's coming ultimately from the same God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Over and over, you see throughout the Scriptures, Paul will refer to it as either the Gospel of Christ or the Gospel of God. In fact, it's more common for him to refer to it as the Gospel of Christ. I just want to look at one passage in Romans for you to see this. Romans 15. We're going to start in verse 15 of Romans 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so verse, verse 16, he mentions the gospel of God. Keep, keep reading, though. In Christ Jesus, and I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So first time, gospel of God. Second time, gospel of Christ. He's using these terms interchangeably. That's fine for him to do if Jesus is on the same level as God the Father. This gospel can belong to both of them. This gospel can come from both of them if they're of an equality that it makes sense that they both can extend that out to us. It can be the gospel of Jesus. It can be the gospel of God. Second, I want to note the frequency of times when we look through 1 Thessalonians. There's 89 verses. It's a really short book. 89 verses in 1 Thessalonians. Look how many times in this short book the different members of the Godhead are mentioned. God the Father is mentioned 31 times. 89 verses, 31 times. And then, three words, Jesus, Lord, and Christ, are mentioned 42 times. So, as I've noted a number of times before, the vast majority of the time when the New Testament writers use, use God and don't qualify if it's God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit, they're referring to God the Father. And the vast majority of the time, the New Testament writers use the term Lord, they're referring to Jesus. Okay, you, you, can, you can see it really clearly over and over again. So God's mentioned 31 times. Jesus, Lord, Christ, uh, 42 times. The Spirit is mentioned four times. So in these 89 verses, you have 67 times these words are used. Jesus, Lord, Christ, God, Spirit. And, and it's interesting Jesus is mentioned more times than God. 42 to 31. Why is that important? Friends, he's not just some person that died 2,000 years ago on a cross. And he's got some historical influence. He's not, he's not like Buddha who, who set an example. He's not like Muhammad who set an example. No, I mean, you take away Jesus from Christianity and you don't have Christianity anymore. I mean, you, just, you lose the whole thing. 
<clears throat> he's not some guy still dead, lying in the tomb. He is active, he is alive, he rose on the third day. He has power over the grave, he has power over sin. No mere man can have that. And what we see when it comes to the church at Thessalonica, he is active and involved and alive in the affairs of this church. Friends, he's active and alive and involved in the affairs of this church. Third, more specifically, in the passage that we've been studying, 1 Thessalonians 3, let's look at that. This is interesting. Unfortunately, it's hard to pick up in the English, almost impossible. But it's clearly there in the Greek. 1 Thessalonians 3, are you there? Verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. How many subjects do we have in verse 11? Not a trick question. Two, right? God the Father and Jesus. Now, if you've, taken, if you've studied foreign languages, this is a hard concept if you've, if you've not or if it's been a long time, but plural subjects require plural what? Verbs. Plural subjects require plural verbs. Single, singular subjects require singular verbs. We, sp- we just grow up speaking English, so we don't even realize that we actually have uh, a language that changes depending on plural or singular. Okay? So even if you just take something like, I run, he runs, we throw a little S on the end. So he runs, but if I say they runs, it doesn't sound right. It's they run. So our, our language, eh, just tiny Usually we just throw an S on the end to, to do things. Greek and, and Latin and other languages make it a little more, a little more clear. Here, you got two subjects. Plural subjects require plural verbs. But that verb, direct, in verse 11, direct our way to you, it's in the singular. Now, Paul was a sharp guy trained by some of the best. He knew how to write Greek. So whenever a Greek writer breaks the rules of Greek grammar, you have to pause, because it's done intentionally at times throughout the New Testament. You have to pause and say, why? Well, why would he put these two subjects and just give a singular verb? Because he was equating the Father and the Son putting them on the same level, implying that they are one. Why? Because they indeed are. It actually happens a couple times in 2 Thessalonians, but we might not get that until next year (laughs) or the year after. So we see it in the grammar, but uh, fourth and most importantly, uh, it is easy to miss this. It's easy to miss this, but it's right in front of us. We've studied that these, these verses, 11, 12, and 13, are prayers, right? They're prayers. 
These are prayers. So let's, each one of them is a prayer. Verse 11 is a prayer. Verse 12 is a prayer. Verse 13 is a prayer. Let's look, and we have looked at those prayers. But let's look at verse 11. Who's being prayed to? May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus. This is a prayer that Paul is directing to God the Father and to Jesus. He is praying to both of them. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, I'm praying to anyone but God is idolatry. Right? So either Paul's really messed up in his theology, which he isn't, or or he's cluing us in here on something. He's cluing us in on the deity of Christ. Why? Because he's, he's praying to Christ. He's praying to him. He does that. Now you can say, well, okay, maybe uh, you know, Paul just kind of threw Jesus in and is, is really just really focused on God and it's just Jesus is like in parentheses or something like that. Well, the, the singular verb kind of strikes against that idea. But he's praying. But if that's not enough, then look at verse, uh, look at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Now he just focuses it and the prayer is just to Jesus. You're like, oh, I don't know, Pastor. Maybe that, maybe that Lord there really just means God, just like they talk about Lord in the Old Testament. Friends, in verse 11, how is Jesus referred to? Lord Jesus. All right, so our context clues us in like five words later. In verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love paul is praying this prayer to jesus and jesus alone and there's nothing wrong with it and then 13 so that he may establish your hearts who's establishing your hearts jesus Again, the prayer is to Jesus and Jesus alone, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, so that he is, the Lord may establish your hearts before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus, at his own coming. Only one who was divine would be prayed to. And here's the thing. Think about this for a moment. Think how... This truth is so simply stated to the Thessalonians. He doesn't list the reasons why. He doesn't have to argue for it. No, he simply states it. And, and if you're trying to build an argument, usually prayer is not the best time to do that. These are prayers. And he's just, he's just doing it like as, as normal, everyday stuff as he's writing to the Thessalonians. Why? Because he'd already instructed the Thessalonians in it. He'd already instructed them in it. And think about that. He was only with them for weeks, maybe a couple months, but only weeks. So if you're only going to be with someone for a short period of time, what are you going to focus on? The most important stuff, right? You've got limited time. You're going to focus on the most important stuff. They already knew about the deity of Christ such that 
They didn't even have to be taught in this particular letter about it. Then step back for a moment and realize 1 Thessalonians is probably Paul's second letter. It might be his first letter, but it's his second letter in the New Testament canon. And be sometimes, you know, some, some scholars and people, oh, this, this doctrine of the Trinity developed, you know, years and hundreds of years later. No. Paul's second letter, he's, he, he's already mentioning it. He's already talking about it. He's acting like, man, this is just something that we, we just, everybody knows it. We're praying to God. We're praying to Jesus. I don't even have to explain. Why? Because I just explained it to you guys a couple months ago. You already know about it. I don't have to make an argument for it. I already did that in person. What does this show us? It shows us it was an important doctrine enough that he instructed them in the short time he had with them. This, this was key. And friends, listen. One, we've got to get the gospel right. Part of that gospel is understanding properly who God is. Who God is. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the, the big debate in the early church, a couple hundred years after the time of Paul, just came down to one little Greek letter when it came to the deity of Christ. Arian was arguing that Jesus was similar to God. And believers were arguing that he was the same as God. It's like homoousian versus homoousian. Just one little letter made all the difference, though. And Athanasius was standing for the truth of this doctrine. And people were telling, oh, everyone's against you, everyone's against you. No, and he stood firm. And there's the famous saying, uh, Athanasius contra mundum. They're like, the world is against you, Athanasius. And his famous reply was, then I am against the world. And if we're going to stand for the truth of the gospel, at times the world is going to be fiercely against us. Fiercely. And we have to stay true, 100% true, completely true, fully true. We can't mess up the gospel. We can't import other things into the gospel. Health and wealth. That's bogus stuff. So we've got to get the gospel right. And it starts with the doctrine of God. It starts with what we call sound doctrine. Because that's what the scriptures call it. Sound doctrine. But here's the other thing in the way of application for us. You, if you're a believer, you have a relationship with the triune God. The triune God. Each member of the Godhead you have a relationship with. This is most clearly seen in 1 John. Turn there. We're just going to start in verse 1, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. 
that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then look at this part. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, when, when you get saved, many things happen, but you're entering back into a right relationship with God. You're entering that relationship with Him. Your sin separates you. You were born into it with the separation from God. And you're trying to get into right relationship with Him. You trust in Christ. The sin that divided you is swept away. That relationship is made back to what God originally designed it to be. You're in right relationship with God. But friends, you're also in right relationship with the Son. You have the relationship with the Father. Here it says, the fellowship is with the Father. You have a fellowship with the Father, each one of you. You also have a fellowship with the Son, each one of you. I remember reading this and first trying to wrap my mind around it. You have fellowship with each member of the Trinity. If they're each individual members of the Godhead, then you have each a relationship with each one of them. Yes, with the Godhead fully, but also with each member of that Trinity. And you can commune with all three. What we see, something as simple and, and written as First Thessalonians, the beginning of Paul's ministry, praying to Jesus is acceptable. Right? Some of you are like, well, I always thought it was. <laughs> That's good because some people have argued that it's not. And some people have argued, well, this is probably the best way or the proper way. I don't know, I've got to submit to Scripture. I don't know about you. But if Paul's praying to Jesus and laying it out for us and directing us to do the same thing, it's good enough for me. Same in Acts with Stephen. He's praying to Jesus. So that, that's acceptable to do, even encouraged. You can pray to the Father. You can pray to the Son. But here's what I want to acknowledge and make sure we don't miss. Like when you're praying to the Lord, it's an acknowledgement that you have a relationship with Him. That you've entered into communion with Him. Let's make sure, and this is what I think is important for many of us, let's make sure, well, hit the pause button. Uh, what's the chief end of man? Yes, know God and enjoy Him fully or forever, right? <clears throat> so, unpause. When we're in relationship with Him, a lot of times we forget the enjoy Him forever part. Like, the Lord wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Now, for whatever reason, it took me 18 years and, and going down to college and making some bad decisions for that to... God to fully have that become evident to me. But it just blew my mind, I just have to tell you. When I realized that the creator of the universe wanted to know me, of course, he already knew me, right? He knows everything. 
but he wanted me to know him. And he wanted to have a relationship with me. I mean, that was just like, explosion. But let's make sure as we're walking our Christian walk to enjoy that relationship. It says the chief end of man is part of that know God and enjoy him fully or forever. Let's make sure we're enjoying the things of God, who he is, what he's done, instead of just kind of going through rote and believing those things and maybe even believing them in our heart. Like God wants us to enjoy our relationship with him. Think about some of your best friends. Like you have a relationship with them and sometimes you get together and you're having a great time. You're enjoying that relationship. And if you're married, think about your spouse enjoying times with them, whatever that might be, whether you're going on a hike or going to a movie, you're enjoying the relationship with them. We need to be like that when it comes to the Father and to the Son. We need to enjoy our relationship with Him. Too often, friends, we get, we get focused on the rules and the do's and the don'ts. And yes, absolutely, they are there, and we need to listen to them. We need to do the do's and don't the don'ts, okay? But let's walk in enjoyment of the fellowship that we have with us. Could God have saved us and been like, hey, I'm, I'm saving you, and I'm, I'm still doing it this way, but um, I'm not going to have a relationship with you. I, mean, you know, I guess he could have done that. But, but he wants fellowship with us. He wants that koinonia that First John talks about. He wants relationship with us. He, he created us. And he's just going to create us and, and stick us on the earth and, hey, good luck. <clears throat> no. It was for relationship. He wants to commune with us. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm very big into the transcendence of God, but I'm also big into the imminence of God. He is very near to us. So when we talk about, we were talking about at a life group the other night, God being omnipresent. There's, that's actually the transcendence and the imminence like all in one. Like God is everywhere, the transcendence, but the imminence is he's right here next to me. Right here. And the transcendence is like, man, I'm, I'm praying to the God of the universe who's my God, who is powerful, who can do anything. But then the imminence is like, Lord, I'm, I'm in trouble right now and I need you so badly. Please help me out. The transcendence and the imminence. And we need to walk in both when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And, and, and sometimes we, we, we probably, some of us swing one way and, and, and some of us swing the other. That goes back to sound doctrine. It needs to be sound. But, but God wants us in fellowship with him. And friends, read through the Psalms like it talks about tasting of the sweetness of the Lord. Tasting of the sweet, he, like he's, he's so good to us. He's so amazing. He's so gracious. It's like honey to our lips, what he's done. Our relationship is a privilege that we should drink deeply from every single day. Let's pray. Lord, we're privileged to know you. We're privileged that you, the creator of the universe, the one in charge of all things, who is mighty and powerful and awesome and amazing, even the wind has to listen to you. 
Even the seas have to obey you. Inanimate things, God, you are still in control of. And you, the awesome, powerful, amazing, transcendent God, came for us through your son, Jesus. And you humbled yourself, Jesus, as Philippians talks about. And you came for us. And we thank you. Lord, I pray for each one of us. Let us not be the seed that gets caught up with the worries of the world and gets choked. Let us be the seed on the good soil. Let us be the seed that's planted right, that's watered right. Let us walk with you and enjoy the fellowship we have with you the riches and the mercies you give us, Lord. Let us walk in that for your glory. Amen.